Withdraw Wild, everybody. I'm your host, Matt, and before we get to our episode today, we want to hear how we can make Fifth Draw better for you. Do you have a topic you'd like us to cover? Or a guest you'd like us to get on? Please let us know. Now, enjoy the episode. And our guest today is returning guest for his third appearance on the show, Alan Sells. Alan, how you doing? I'm doing good, Matt. How are you? I'm doing all right. Happy to have you on for this. Uh, this should be a really interesting one today. It should be. Um... Today, we are going to be discussing uh, Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere. Asterisk, one of the things we're discussing is not Cosmere, but I just felt like we had to talk about it. Um, But Brandon Sanderson is a very prolific writer. Um, He actually sat down to write one book and accidentally produced two um, at one point. Um, He wrote a blog post about how he was just like, oops, guys, sorry, the one book that I was writing turned into two. So you get uh, Bands of Mourning in November and Shadows of Self in February. And as a as a aspiring sort of working in progress writer, uh, that infuriates me. Well, we're not sure if Brandon Sanderson is an actual human or a robot. He won't ever confirm or deny. Um, you know, there there are some leanings to both that he is human, or he could be cyborg. He could be both. I'm not going to rule out cosmic entity from elsewhere telling oh, that's the stories true of another world. That is very, very true, too. The cool thing about him, though, um, that I really like in talking, you talking about being an aspiring writer made me think of it, is he's actually a teacher. Um, he teaches, I want to say, in Utah, um, but all of his lectures, he makes them online available for free. Um, he does a podcast called Writing Excuses, um, which are him, which is him and two other authors um, that just discuss you know, the writing process. How do you create? What do you do? Um, he's pretty prolific. He is all about sharing the craft and sharing the art. Um, I've seen him at two different cons, and one of the ones he I went to, he literally did a free lecture on designing magic systems. And it was an hour and a half of him just kind of talking about magic, how to make it interesting, how to make it work. It was super cool. Yeah, I've, I've listened to, to some of his podcasts. It's really good. Um, mm-hmm. So... Since we're not talking about the overarching cosmos that he's knitting together, um, why don't you give us like the 30-second pitch on what that deal is, and then we'll dive into the rest of this. Okay, so ugh, 30 seconds, that's okay. TikTok, so there, TikTok. There was once a being called Andalusium, um, and there were 16 people that were jealous of Andalusium's power, so they killed Andalusium. Broke him into 16 shards, by the way, and Elysium was a god, um, and then scattered themselves across the universe. Um, these shards found homes on different planets, and these different planets are where all of Brandon Sanderson's stories, asterisk, take place. Some of Brandon Sanderson's stories, like the Reckoners, which we're going to talk about, are not tied. Um, I think the only ones that aren't tied into the Cosmere are the Reckoners. Um, I think the Arithmetist... No, the Arithmetist is, I think... Uh, and then, uh, Scrivener's Bones, what is that? Alcatraz. Alcatraz versus, that is not Cosmere. Everything else he writes is Cosmere. If you see, like, a short story, um, he has a novella called Shadows in the, Shadows of Silence in the Forest of Hell, that is Cosmere. Um, I'm trying to think of other, uh, Legion isn't, 
Uh, Legion is a short story thing that's going to be turned into a TV series, I think, or a movie or something. But um, most of what he does is Cosmere. Um, and that's kind of interesting because in one of the things that we're going to be talking about, you start getting crossover. You start seeing things from other books start impacting other books directly and characters showing up where they quote unquote shouldn't be, um, which is super interesting. It's, um, listen, if all that didn't make sense to you, uh, listeners, that's <laughs> fine and totally understandable. I've only kind of dipped my toe into this. And the only reason I'm able to follow that is because world building is my jam. And ultimately, that's what it boils down to is Brandon Sanderson is, is a master of really lots of things, but two things primarily world building and magic systems. He is a detail nut, and I love it. Um, one of the series uh, in particular we're going to be talking about today is much more heavily detailed than the others, um, but everything Brandon Sanderson does has purpose. Very rarely does he just put something in for, for funsies. You know, if it's there, it's there on purpose. All right, well, let's dive in then. Uh, the first thing of his we're going to look at is what, Alan? Uh, it is called Elantris. Um, Elantris is Brandon Sanderson's first published book. Um, he had tried many, many, many times to get something published. I think it was, you know, 13 failures, I think was the number before he actually got Elantris picked up. Um, but Elantris is his first published work, not his first written work. Um, but it also includes probably my favorite opening line I've ever read ever, which is, Prince Raiden of Aralon awoke early that morning, completely unaware that he had been damned for all eternity. That's 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 good. That's potent. Mm -hmm. That's got it's some. It's really to it. hooky, really hooky. Um, so Elantris is uh, set on the world of Cell. It is mostly about a cursed city of called Elantris. It's the namesake of the book that used to be home to radiant gods. Um, Elantrians were beautiful, all-powerful, the city of Elantris was shining and beautiful, but about ten years before the start of the story, something happened, and Elantris went from a shining city of the gods to a cursed hell zone. Um, it's really interesting, again, it's his first published work, anytime anyone ever asks, where do I start with Sanderson, if you're wanting Cosmere, I always point to Elantris first. Does it, does it lay a lot of the groundwork seeds for the overarching? It does. And it really is a great introduction to Brandon Sanderson's style, okay. which is he likes to drop you into the middle of things and reveal exposition um, as stage pieces almost. It, it, there's not a lot of super a lot of expository dumps. Most of the information you get about the world is while a character is discovering it. Um, so, for example, Rayodin is a prince. Um, he is the prince of Aralon, and he wakes up one morning transformed into an Elantrian. What that means is his skin got patchy, his hair started to fall out. Um, Elantrians cannot die, uh, so they cannot be killed, and the bodies do not repair themselves. So, kind of the, the weird thing about an Elantrian is, let's say you stub your toe. Now imagine that pain forever. That is an Elantrian. If they get a paper cut, that's there forever. If they get a stab wound, it is there forever and they cannot die. 
Um, they do not have to eat, yet they feel the pains of hunger. So if they do not eat, they can starve but never die. That sounds awful. It is. Um, and so Raritan awakes as an Elantrian, and basically his father's like, oh, well, when you turn into an Elantrian, you are declared dead. So basically he goes to his father, the king, and is like, father, I'm, you know, I don't know what happened. And he was like, well, the Rayod came upon you and uh, you're dead. So my son is dead. Throw him in Elantris. I don't have a son anymore. Harsh. And so they throw him in Elantris and shut the gates behind him. Um, and Rayodin kind of is like, you know, it's not fair the way that we've been treating Elantrians now that he is one. Um, and the fact that inside of Elantris, it is a lot of gangs and it's a lot of anarchy. Um, there are people there that um, solely exist to beat up new Elantrians when they come in to give them pain. Um, there's a, the Elantrian death, quote unquote, because they never die, is called the Hoed. And what happens is when a person is in so much pain that they cease to function, basically their brain shuts down and all they can do is repeat the last thing they said before they went into the Hoed. Um, and so there, he's walking around Elantris, which is this beautiful ruined city, and they're just corpses quote-unquote, for lack of better terms, just scattered about spouting nonsense or spouting the last thing that they said before they went basically insane. Um, Elantris is kind of dark. Um, it, it kind of starts out in a, a much darker place than his other books do. Um, but it's very interesting because it's got a, a triangular narrative structure. So you have Raritan um, as one of the main characters. Then you have Serene. Uh, Serene is a princess who was Raritan's political bride-to-be, and they had never met before, so she was on her way to Aralon to marry him. But in her travels, he became an Elantrian, therefore he died. But the rules of Aralon is, well, you were already married, so now you're his widow. You're still part of the royal court. You're still go you still have to fulfill your duties because your husband is dead. You never met him, and we threw him in Elantris because he's dead and he's an Elantrian. So she, coming from a different perspective, kind of looks at um, the way the common people are treated. It's very much an oligarchy type situation um, where the noble class very much, you know, pushes down the commoners and, of course, the Elantrians, too. So she tries to find a way to politically make things better for the people. And then you have Rothen. Rothen is a high-ranking priest who arrives uh, with a mandate to invert, convert the entire country to his religion within three months' time, or else the armies of that religion will come and kill everyone. Okay, so that's not creepy at all. Nope. Rothen is not a nice dude. Um, he, he's referred to a lot as the Red Priest because he wears a lot of red robes. Um, and basically, he's the quote-unquote antagonist, uh, but he has his own reasons for doing things. The interesting thing about Rothen is that he thinks he's right. Okay. He's very much set in his beliefs. And you get it from his perspective. There are three perspectives in this book. You get Raiden, Serene, and Rothen. So when it's in his POV, it's very much these savages don't know what they're doing. You know, they don't realize, you know, 
the horrors that they're uh, that they have wrought or they could rot they need they need me they need this light they need this information and so it's very interesting to see that not dichotomy maybe trichotomy between the three characters um because it does shift perspective quite a bit elantris is standalone um, that's the other cool thing about this particular book is there is a follow-up called The Emperor's Soul. Um, it's a mini novella that takes place on a different part of the planet that does not tie into Elantris itself. Huh. Um, but it there is rumor of an Elantris sequel coming, um, but Brandon Sanderson has said nothing more than, I'm thinking about writing one. Uh, it ends in such a way that it really doesn't need a sequel, in my opinion, but I have full faith in Brandon Sanderson that whatever he produces is going to be very good. Anything else that we need to get out of that? Uh, any more? Well, one of the things that I'm going to talk about with all of this, all of these uh, series is the magic system. Brandon okay. Sanderson's magic systems are always incredible to me. This one is called Aeon. Or Aeon? It's A-O-N-S. I'm not... Okay. I'm not 100% sure. I've never actually tried to pronounce that word. Um, but essentially, it is magical writing or shapes that induce magic. So, so it's kind of kind runic? Runic, yes. Very kind of sacred numerology, sacred like symbols, that kind of thing. Um, in order to enact magic, you have to create runes and symbols. Um, and so at one point during the book, and I don't want to spoil... Um, spoil it, but at one point during the book, Raritan rediscovers um, this magic. Uh, he finds a library and he finds the writings and kind of how this works. Um, and he attempts to do magic and it sort of works, but not quite. And they address why the magic is failing. And so this is a really interesting in that the magic system is imperfect. Okay. And it's very interesting in how it's imperfect. Um, I, I highly, highly recommend reading it. It's it's a great intro to Brandon Sanderson. Um, it is not as confusing as I made it out to be. <laughs> the thing about Elantris is it's hard to talk about without discussing spoilers. Um, because pretty much the, the book hits the ground running. You heard the first sentence. Um, it does not waste any time throwing you into the middle of the situation with the characters and just kind of running away. Um, it's a relatively quick read i do highly highly recommend it okay well we're gonna bounce on from there to uh the second series that we're looking at and that's warbreakers yes warbreaker um warbreaker again is a standalone um except it's not it is but it's not it is alone in that it is a single book but it has far-reaching consequences um warbreaker is probably one of my favorite it's probably my second favorite magic system that brandon sanderson has um but the idea of warbreaker is you are following a pair of sister princesses um viviana and siri from the country of idris um and viviana has been raised her entire life to marry the god king of haladrian um so in this world, in Warbreaker, there are literal walking gods. They are between 9 and 12 feet tall. They literally glow. They have magic, like tons and tons of magic. Um, and they are worshipped as such. So for political, for reasons of uh, political expediency, and kind of because the king preferred one daughter over the other, Ciri is sent in Viviana's stead. 
So basically the king is like, yeah, you were raised to do this all your life, but I need you here. Siri, you're going to go in her place. And so Siri has to go and marry this god king, um, even though she doesn't have any clue really what she's doing. Uh, Viviana is pissed. And this is, I think, I think this is one of my favorite things in this novel is Viviana's like, no, you literally just took the whole thing I've been training and working for my entire life. So she runs away. Um, she goes and follows her sister to Hollandron um, to try to figure out what's going on and if she can, you know, basically save her sister and take her proper place. Um, at the same time, and this again is one of my, I, I love this character. You follow a character named Light Song, who is a god. So the gods are newly, are, are called returned, which means that they were people, like they were just normal dudes, but then they came back to life as a god. And uh, they get, this kind of gets into the magic system, but they get what's called a divine breath, which gives them infinite uses of magic, uh, because the magic system here is called breaths. Um, it is, I'm trying to think of the, the word that they call it biochromatic breaths that's what it is um so it's all about color so you can walk up to something and touch it and breathe in and suck out its color okay and so let's say that you do that to a shirt you're wearing you're going to bleach your iron man shirt would be bleached white but then you could turn around to the blanket behind you and say protect me breathe the breath that you took out of the color into the blanket and it will come to life and obey what command you gave it. Hmm. Okay. So it's really neat. Um, the divine can do this infinite times. Basically, their breath is is infinite. However, they have to, every week, basically eat. Not eat a person, but take their breath. Um, so every single person has one innate breath within them. One breath of this biochromatic essence. If you lose it, you become dull. And basically, your sense of the world kind of dims. You're alive, but you're not alive. And every week, the returned have to take a breath from someone. So they have, like, lined up people who volunteer to basically allow their gods to live. Um, but it's very, very interesting. The more breaths you have, the more power you gain. So there are actually, like, different levels. So at one level, you could look at something and perfectly tell what different shades of color you're looking at. Um, at one, you can look at somebody and tell how much breath they have, if they have breath. Um, it's really interesting. Like your senses become heightened as you get all of this stuff. It, it feels like they would run out of people eventually. Well, um, a lot of them are children. Huh. Yeah. And it deals with that. Um, Light Song actually is very, very empathetic. Um, he's a very relatable character. And so he goes into it being like, why do I have to do this? Why is my life so much more important than the lives of the people whose breath I'm taking? I mean, yes, they can continue to live, but they're not able to live their best life because I took it from them. And so it's really interesting perspective because he is a very reluctant God. He does not want to be a God. Um, then you meet, I think her name is Lightweaver. No, something Weaver. 
I can't remember, but she is basically like the goddess of sex. Um, and she is kind of trying to let him know, oh no, this is why we do it. This is, you know, the people need us, all of this stuff. Um, I'd be loath to mention the fourth main character of the book, whose name is Vasher. Uh, Vasher, and all I'll say about him is he's a mysterious character. He has a talking sword named Nightblood. And Nightblood wants to destroy evil and will literally ask you, Hey, do you want to destroy evil? Can we destroy some evil? Like he'll talk to you and ask you to destroy evil for him. It, what does what does Nightblood consider evil, Alan? Well, that is a very interesting question. Um, Nightblood usually considers evil whatever Nightblood's wielder considers evil. Nightblood is kind of a failed experiment of trying to create a living weapon. Um, so Nightblood has the ability once it's out of its sheath to basically steal breath it just devours it so if you throw it into a room full of people not only are they dead they have been drained of all essence their blood is gray their bodies are lifeless and limp and all essence has been removed um nightblood nightblood scary well you might have to read the book to find out um it's it's really interesting kind of playing with that um, and of course, Vasher meets up with one of the girls. Um, he meets up with Viviana, I'm pretty sure. Um, and that's kind of how you get introduced to the whole thing with Nightblood and all of that. Um, but it's really interesting. It's set on the world of uh, Nalthus, where um, Elantris was sell. This is set on the world of Nalthus. Um, and again, it is a standalone story in that you can read Warbreaker and get everything you need out of that one story. You're done. But there are things in Warbreaker that appear in other books. Um, there actually is a character that appears in every single one of Brandon Sanderson's Cosmere novels. Um, he appeared in Elantris, he appears in Warbreaker, he appears in Mistborn, and he appears in the Stormlight Archive. Um, his name is Hoyd. And in each book, he has a different role. So, for example, in um, Warbreaker, he is a storyteller. So Light Song basically summons a storyteller for entertainment. His name is Hoyd, and Hoyd tells him a story. And the story Hoyt tells is actually relevant to other things going on in the Cosmere. Uh, so, again, I don't want to say too much without giving too much away. Uh, but hopefully what I'm what I'm getting at with these is to wet your whistle enough to make you want to read these books because they are very interesting. It sure sounds like it. So, um, I guess, do we, need, do we need anything else from Warbreaker or are we ready to go to number three? I think we're already ready to go to number three. Um, number three is the one that is not related to anything else. So all of this talk about the Cosmere, all of this talk about everything else, you can just put that on the shelf for a minute. We're this taking is a break the... before we get to the good stuff. Yeah, before we get into the real meaty stuff. Um, these are called The Reckoners. Um, so there are three books in the Reckoner series, Steelheart, Fireflight, and Calamity. Um, I'm just kind of going to focus on Steelheart um, again. Don't want to spoil. Um, new, uh, the Reckoner series takes place in a future version of Earth. Essentially, the idea is that one day this thing appeared in the sky and people called it Calamity. After that appeared, people started gaining superpowers. That's That doesn't ever go well for anyone ever. No. Um, and these people were called Epics. And these people went insane. The more that they used their powers, the crazier they became. 
and basically they all became evil, like textbook supervillain evil. Um, the main antagonist of Steelheart is, of course, Steelheart. Steelheart is invulnerable. You cannot kill him. You cannot touch him. You cannot pierce him. Um, he's also super strong and all of this stuff. So basically, he goes to the city of Chicago and goes, this is mine now. He also has the ability to turn anything he touches into steel. Okay. So what he does is he goes to the middle of Chicago and goes, hmm, this is mine now. Touches the ground and turns the entire city of Chicago to steel. I, I feel like that would be a, a bad experience for people who happen to be living in Chicago at the time. Very much so. And in fact, the main character, his name is David. His father was murdered by Steelheart during that, uh, during Steelheart's takeover. Um, he changed the name of Chicago to New Cargo because, you know, everything got to get renamed. I don't like it's... that. I don't like that name. That's a bad name. <laughs> it's a bad, a bad name. That's a bad name, Brent. Well, it's, it's a bad name, but it, it kind of works with Steelheart's character because Steelheart's not very creative. He's not very innovative. He knows how to do one thing, and that's basically kill people and not die. Um, hey, hold on. Until the minute anyone dies, everyone knows how to not die. That's not hard. Well, I mean, he has multiple people trying to kill him pretty much at all times, and he, he literally cannot die. He is impervious. Okay. Um, it's one of his power sets. Um, and so these epics that get these powers all go crazy. The more that they use their powers, the more insane they become. And the story follows a kid named David who meets up with a crew called the Reckoners who are a bunch of, you know, mundane mortal people that are like, you know, we are not going to live under the oppressive epics anymore. We're going to take them down. How, how badly does that go for them? Um, it actually goes pretty well, um, because they have a guy on their side named Prof. Prof, or Professor Prof, is the leader of the Reckoners. He has a bunch of technology that can simulate epic powers. Um, so they kind of arm themselves with quasi-epic powers and go after, uh, epics. David, of course, goes, you know what? No, we're taking down Steelheart. All the rest of them think he's insane, and that's, that's basically the book Steelheart is David convincing the Reckoners to take down Steelheart and then attempting to take down Steelheart. And it's very, very interesting. Um, David is, <sighs> David is a special kind of garbage and he is a special kind of garbage that is spe uh, created specifically to delight me because he is very bad at puns. He tries um... real hard, but he's shit. Oh, and no. so all of the rest of the Reckoners make fun of him the whole time. And it's beautiful. Oh, it is absolutely no. beautiful. Um, Steelheart is very funny. Um, it's very action-packed, but there's a lot of humor to it. Um, and again, it's just kind of a really fun super superhero, quote-unquote. It's super-powered, but there are no superheroes. Um, romp. It's just, it's a lot of fun. And then, of course, being because it's Brandon Sanderson, you get all the feels at the end. And that's like a proper trilogy, right? It is. It is a proper trilogy. Um, you have Steel Steelheart, Firefight, and Calamity. There is a short story called Mitosis, um, and it can be read in between Steelheart and Firefly or Firefight. It is literally, I think, like 60 pages. Um, it's really cool. It's basically what if Jamie Madrox, the multiple man, uh, could also like absorb information. It's really neat. Um, so mitosis is a really cool epic and it introduces weaknesses. So basically every epic has a weakness. 
um, one thing that happened to them or was present in their previous life as a mortal that when they got their superpowers because of that thing, it causes their superpowers to shut down. So, so he realized he wrote himself into a bit of a corner with, well, a, with an invincible. I guess let's say, let's say what is something you are really afraid of, Matt? Spiders. Spiders. Okay. So let's say that you become an epic and your epic ability is anything you write becomes real. That's your epic ability. I immediately write spiders out of existence. Well, that could cause a problem (laughs) because if you were exposed to a spider and you you had that fear reaction to the spider, your power shut down. So if you had wrote down, you know, I am invincible. I cannot be killed. um, I am perfect. Everyone loves me. You know, if someone happened to have a spider and could expose you to it and you see it and you have a response to it in that moment, there is a window where your powers no longer operate. Okay. Leaving you vulnerable. Gotcha. Okay. And it doesn't have to be something physical. Um, there could, there's one, I think that uh, there was an Epic whose uh, weakness was heights because they were afraid of falling. Um, and it, it, a lot of it is, it's really interesting the way they go into how epics get their powers and what powers are given to an epic, why they get those specific things. Um, so Steelheart has a reason for having invulnerability and the ability to change anything into steel. Like there, if you go back into his history, you see why that happened. Um, so it's really interesting. It, it, it starts out as a very light read. It's it's more intended for YA, but with a lot of Brandon Sanderson stuff, if he writes YA, there's something there for people who want to read deeper into it, but it, you don't have to read deeper into it to enjoy it, if that makes sense. Okay. So is there any sort of specific magic system we need to delve into on this one, or is it uh, a little Just too- the epics. Okay. Um, so basically, when Calamity appeared... Epics got powered. Epics were seemingly random. The people that got the powers were seemingly random. And again, spoilers, I don't want to go into it. Um, but they got powers based on themselves and who they were as people. Okay. But the way Calamity worked is that it drove them insane the more that they used their powers. So that's really all you got to know is that Calamity gifts powers. Powers make people crazy. Basically, you have superpowered gangs. So, like, all over America, different epics took up resident in different cities. So there's, like, an epic in Atlanta. There's an epic in New Orleans. They renamed all the cities because, of course, they did. And just kind of, they go to different cities. The, the first book happens in New Cago. It's pretty much exclusively in New Cago. But after the first book, they do explore America a little bit, and they go into what happened. It's really interesting. All right. Well, um, we've had a nice little diversion from the, from the meat. Uh, and we're going to dive into some heavy stuff with number four, uh, Mistborn. Number four is probably my favorite thing Brandon Sanderson has written. I would agree with that. I love Mistborn. It is a great book. Cool. Um, and hopefully we can have more dialogue in this one. Woo. Um, <laughs> um, Mistborn is interesting in that it started as a trilogy of books, which then got a short story. That short story became a quadrillion or a quartet then he was like you know i could do even more with this so there are future plans so essentially the first misborn trilogy is fantasy 
It's horses and carriages and peasants and cobblestones. Second trilogy is steampunk. Steampunk Wild West. There are guns. There are cowboys. There are, you know, there's technology, electricity, um, all of that. The next trilogy he's going to be writing, be still my heart, is going to be set in basically 1980s level technology. Computers, um, programming, space. Space, like early space travel. And then the last trilogy he's going to write is a space opera. And this is all just stemming from the Mistborn world. All stemming from this Mistborn world, all the same magic system. But my favorite part is things that happen in the first trilogy are referenced later. And we'll get kind of into that. Um, so the first trilogy, Mistborn, is um, the the... Elevator pitch is essentially there are these people. Um, they live in this world where ash continuously falls. Basically, voca- volcanoes are constantly erupting and ash fall blankets the world. It is all controlled by the Lord Ruler. And the Lord Ruler is all. He is perfect, he is infallible, um, and he is very much domineering. Underneath the Lord Ruler, you have the nobility, and underneath the nobility, you have the Ska. And the Ska are basically like peasants. They are, you know, the working class. They get they get crapped on a lot. They have to do all the work for the nobles. And from the Ska rise what are called Mistborns. Um, the magic system in Mistborn is so heavily tied to understanding Mistborn. It's called Allomancy. Actually, there are three, but the first one we're going to talk about is Allomancy. Um... It's probably one of my favorite magic systems aside from the one power from the Wheel of Time. It's it's the idea of consuming metals and whatever metal you consume, depending on what type of misting you are, um, gives you a power. And it's always a metal and it's always its alloy. So the one I usually give as an example is iron and steel. Iron lets you push things, push metal things away from you. Steel lets you pull them towards you. Most people are born with the ability, um, if, if they have any missing ability at all, they can only burn one metal. Um, so you have what are called coin shots, which can only you know burn iron. Or you have copper clouds, which can only burn copper. But every so often, very, very rarely, you get a mistborn who can consume and use all consumable metals. All metals that give power, they can use. And that amount of metal is constantly increasing. Um, it was uh, a certain amount in Trilogy 1. It expanded in Trilogy 2. And it's probably going to continue to expand uh, based on what people can burn and what people can do. Um, but the story of Mistborn follows a girl named Ven, who awakens as a Mistborn. She always thought she was just lucky. Um, she's a ska, like she was homeless and a beggar. Um, but she's found by a guy named Kelsier who realizes what she is. Um, and basically is trained, like trains her and Mistborn, the final empire, which is the first book is kind of like Ocean's 11. It's very much a, um, it's a heist. It's a heist. heist. It's very much a heist story. So you have Kelsier and his band of plucky thieves, and they are trying to steal, um, something out of the Lord Ruler's treasury. What is called the 11th medal. Um, it is this uh, sacred and powerful metal that supposedly allows you to do all sorts of crazy shit. Um, but, yeah, so Mistborn 
is a is a high fantasy heist. Well, not even high fantasy, low fantasy heist. Yeah, it's uh, it's a great story. Like the characters in this are just awesome, and they do really, really interesting things. Like there's religious manipulation and everything. It's so good. And, and the religious system in Mistborn is very, very interesting. You have a, a group of people called the Terrace, um, and they are dedicated to, like, the old gods and, and things like that. This is where the second type of magic, Fjorkimi, comes into play. Um, Fjorkimi is the ability to store things in metal. So, for example, if you have copper, if you are a copper Fjorkimist, you can store memories. So basically, the memory is removed from your head and placed into the copper. So you don't remember it anymore, but it's in the copper and it cannot be removed. And you can tap into that to remember it. And you can tap into that to remember it. There's one that uh, allows you, I think it's pewter, allows you to do that with strength. But while you're storing something, you lose that thing temporarily. So if you're storing strength, you become weaker. If you're storing, like perception eyesight you need to wear glasses and you can't hear as well um that's 10 if you like uh, one is health uh, which is gold that comes up in the second trilogy uh, but you're sicker you're like sickly while you're storing up health but as you store up health once you draw on that resort reserve like if you got shot and you draw on your reserve of health it knits you back together and you're fine so some of it is incredibly powerful um Pure Kimmy is very interesting. In the first trilogy, you th- never the two shall meet. Um, it is always you are either a misting or a fear chemist. But in the second trilogy, you get what are called twinborn, which can do both. Um, usually it's one mist power and then one fear chemical power, um, which again, we'll kind of talk about when we get to the second uh, trilogy. But um, the first trilogy, you also get Eland, who is one of my favorite characters in Mistborn. He is this... Um, naive noble and he's very very smart and he hates the nobility and Vin kind of accidentally falls in love with him and it's really kind of their relationship is very dynamic um, and it's very interesting to see a, a noble of this particular world waking up to what's actually happening yeah it's it's a he goes on a journey Mm-hmm. Even just in the confines of the first book, he goes on a journey that's pretty great. Mm-hmm. So I've been talking quite a lot. What, what what do you like about Mistborn? Oh, there are things you find out over time. And again, no spoilers. Um, one of the things you find out right away, and this is what hooked me into the book immediately, is in front of every chapter, there's like an excerpt from this journal. And it's presented as like the final thoughts and worries of this hero who was supposed to save the whole world. And the implication right at the beginning is what happens if the hero succeeds and turns into a villain? Because that's, mm-hmm. that's the implication. And you know, there are things that go wrong in there that I'm not going to talk about. Um, but it appears to be the Lord ruler is this hero and it's just such a twist to be reading about this man before he became a legend. And that's what hooked me in first. Like, all these things that happened, the world that they describe from before whatever whatever went on, 
uh, was such a different world from the world that we are presented with. And like, there's, there's details in there. It's like somehow the planet moved closer to the sun. Mm-hmm. Like the entire planet was just scrunched in a little bit from the sun and continents were just totally shifted and all this stuff. And it's just like, Whoa, buddy, what happened in that mountain? The other nice thing, though, is that the series doesn't leave you wondering. The series is pretty explicit once you get into um, Hero of Ages and um, the Lost... Or, no, Hero of Ages. Once you start getting into the, the Well of Ascension and the Hero of Ages, it starts becoming... It stops being a heist book and starts becoming something way more complicated but still approachable it gives you all of the complication and all of the nuance but in a very digestible enjoyable and interesting way and and i love that about mistborn is that as you're reading through it and you go oh oh it's the lord ruler so absolute power must corrupt absolutely but it's not that simple. The Lord Ruler's story is so interesting. Is that and something has that comes such... back in the second trilogy? It does, actually. Um, the Lord Ruler's legacy comes back. Um, in actually, one of the titular um, things, the Bands of Mourning. Um, and Mourning as in M-O-R, M-O-U-R-I-N-G. M-O- like funerary. 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 I completely misspelled that like three times, but you know what I mean. Um, so but... are those... Go are ahead. those the Lord Rulers? They are the Lord Rulers, and they are hemallergy. So hemallergy, as the name implies, is blood magic. You have these people called Steel Inquisitors, and they have spikes all over their body, including two spikes that are driven through their eyes. Um, and essentially what happens to create a Steel Inquisitor is you take a mystic of the thing that you want, You place them on top of the person that you want to have that power, and you drive a metal spike of a certain type through the person's heart into the other person to give them access to that specific power. Hemallergy is messed up. Yeah, that sounds bad. Don't mess with blood magic, kids. Um, It it, it will mess you up. It is very bad. Um, But... It is also so interesting because they start playing more into hemology in the second trilogy um, and how it's not, how it is super messed up, but it's not, it doesn't have to be as messed up as you think it is. I'm, I'm imagining a situation where someone gets shot with a bullet that just happens to be owned by a noble and it winds up in somebody else and suddenly now victim uh-huh. number two is super powered. Basically, because, I mean, it's a through and through. So you shoot through a misting. Through their heart. And then it it lodges into someone else, and boom, you have a new misting. It's really interesting. Um, There's a concept in Mistborn called investiture, which is the idea of identity. um, And how much identity plays a role in being able to use power. Um, But it's, it's, it's super interesting. Moving into the second trilogy, since we started talking about it more and more, it stars a guy named Waxilium Ladrian. What a great um, name. And Ladrian may sound familiar if you've read the first trilogy of Mistborn, because that was a character named Breeze's last name. So Waxilium is from Breeze's bloodline. Uh, basically, he's a noble house that uh, that is founded down from there. And they reference the first trilogy 
but it's legends and myth. And, you know, um, I think Vin is called uh, the protector or the hero. Um, you know, like all of these people start getting these really grandiose names and you're like, but wait a minute, I was with them. Like, I, I know their adventure. That's not how it happened. And so as time moves on, some of the things are embellished or twisted or moved or tweaked. And it's really interesting to see the progression of this society and how it's moved forward. Still the same magic system, still the same stuff, but how it recovered after the events of the first Mythborn trilogy and moved on. Um, Wexilium has a best friend named Wayne. Get it? Wax and Wayne. Um, but <laughs> nope. Um, nope, nope, nope. But Wayne exhibits new powers. He is one of the ones that can heal with by in, by instilling health and gold. But he also can manipulate time. He can drop bubbles of time, which allow him to increase his speed like infinite fold. Basically, he freezes time in certain areas which within his bubble makes everything go super fast but everything or everything goes super slow outside the bubble depending on how you want to look at it mm -hmm. um wax can he is a coin shot and he can store his weight he can manipulate his weight which is cool because he can push off the ground and then store all of his weight into his metal mind and then all of a sudden he's floating huh so basically, he weighs nothing and is floating on the wind. Um, it's really interesting the way that they play with these concepts of storing and removing things at specific times. Um, but again, it's kind of a steampunk Wild West situation. Wax was a sheriff out in the wastes, essentially, um, out in the, the scrublands. And he's a noble, and his family wants him to come back and be a noble. And he's like, no, I don't want to do that. I just want to be... I just want to be a sheriff. I just want to help people. Um, and he basically gets sucked into a mystery that he can't turn down. Um, and so that's the first book is called The Alloy of Law. Um, the second and third books are called uh, The Bands of Mourning and the Shadows of Self. And there is a fourth book coming um, before he gets into the third trilogy, which again is going to be 1980s bananas. And then Space Opera. The fourth trilogy is the one that I just, I can't begin to conceive because not only is it a space opera it's using allomancy for faster than light travel oh that's gonna mess up some that's gonna mess with people right it's gonna be so good but apparently the concept for the third trilogy is it's a terrace woman who is a computer programmer is is gonna be the main character oh that'll be pretty great i'm really excited <laughs> So let's uh, let's move right along to the crunchiest bit of this. Um, Alan, I told you earlier, I have tried to get through this book a couple times, and I've made mm -hmm. it to the same point um, that this final one is the Stormlight Archive. The Stormlight Archive. Uh, people refer to this as Brandon Sanderson's magnum opus. This is his Wheel of Time. This is his Lord of the Rings. This is his, you know, big, sprawling, epic fantasy series. And they're not wrong. Um, the first, well, I'll, actually, all of the books could probably be legally used as weapons. They're huge. Um, they are very dense. And I'm going to try my best <laughs> to not get super dense with it. Um, 
but that's just the nature of these books. Um, Stormlight Archive is designed to be crunchy. It is designed to make you think a lot, to have you reference things. There's literally a pocket Stormlight Archive guide um, that you can get to help you like keep track of references and things <laughs> like that, like a little pocket dictionary almost. Um, I unfortunately have yet to get my hands on one. I do plan on it at some point. Um, but Stormlight Archive, the first book is called The Way of Kings. The second book is called The Words of Radiance. Um, the Way of Kings is actually a book within the world. Um, the Way of Kings is how a king should behave. What kind of things should a king do in order to be a good king? And these are things like walk in the shoes of your subjects. Be kind and be empathetic, be understanding, which is the exact opposite of how everything works on this world called Roshar. Um, you have probably one of the most interesting class dichotomies um, to me, the light eyes, literally light eyes versus dark eyes. If you have light colored eyes, blue, green, you are ruling noble class. If you have dark colored eyes, you're a commoner and a peasant. That's it. That's that's one of the dumber ways to determine. Yep, it's real dumb. But like like Brandon Sanderson, it has a reason, and it's a very interesting and borderline scary reason um, that comes out. I think it comes out either in at the end of book one or the end of book two. Um, but you find out kind of why it was that way. Um, and for those of you wondering, well, what if two dark-eyed people have a light-eyed child? That light-eyed child is taken from the dark-eyed people and given to light-eyed people to be raised. That's messed up. It's real messed up. Um, and so you have this ruling class that treats the peasantry like crap. Um, and you follow a dark-eyed man named Kelsier, he, or, um, named Kaladin. Kelsier's from Mistborn. Um, lots of K names. Um, but Kaladin. And Kaladin wanted to be a soldier. His father was a surgeon, but all Kaladin ever wanted to do was be a soldier to defend people um, and to help people. But through circumstances, he wound up a slave. Um, branded as violent um, and taken to the bridges um, of the chasms, basically to die. So the majority of the Way of Kings takes place um, out on the chasms where you fight chasm fiends, you get their gem hearts. Um, it's basically where nobles go and hunt for sport. Um, and in order to hunt, you have to use bridges, which to span the chasms, you have to run bridges so that the light ice armies can go and, and find the chasm fiends and collect their hearts for money and prestige. And it's real messed up. Like lots of slaves die. Um, in this, there also is kind of a war going on um, between the, I think they're the Alethi or the normal folk or like the, the folk you follow um, and the Parshendi are the bad antagonisty people. But again, it's Brandon Sanderson. It's way more complicated than that. Um, and so if they're going to war against the Parshendi, they'll send out the bridge crews first and just basically use them as arrow sponges. And kill all the slaves so that the Parshendi have less arrows to use on their troops. Hmm. It's really messed up. Um, but you follow Kel uh, Kaladin, who is on Bridge 4. 
and kind of the story of his redemption and how he finds uh, a spren. In this world, everything has a spirit, pretty much. So fire, they're called spren. So fire has fire spren, which are these little orange things that walk around and can burn things. The wind have wind spren, which are wind spirits that dance. Uh, rain spren, dark spren, rot spren, uh, you name it, there's a spren for it. Uh, my favorite spren probably is creativity spren. So like if someone is doing art um, and they're doing really, really well, creativity spren will start to gather around them and dance around them while they're doing their art. They're, they're, they're drawn to the person being creative. Um, little is known about the spren as far as the world is concerned. The reader gets a lot of insight into it through, through different things. Um, but they're, they're very interesting. Kaladin meets a spren uh, named Syl, who is a wind spren, and Syl basically sticks with him and says, nah, I, I'm going to hang out with you. Um, and Syl has the annoying ability to turn invisible, which makes Kaladin look crazy sometimes. Um, but again, nobody cares because he's a slave, so he's allowed to be crazy. Um, you then get Shalon, who is a noble light-eyed woman who goes to train with Yasna, this uh, heretic scholar lady who is probably my favorite character in the entire series i, I love yasna or jasna you say it one way or another um i listened to the audiobooks a couple of times so i say yasna um but basically yasna is a heretic she does not abide by uh the religious teachings of of the world and uh of light-eyed society and so shalon goes to learn from her magic um called soul casting where it's basically this beautiful, like, jeweled thingy that you put on your hand that has uh, crystals in it. Um, and you can use it to transform objects into other things. So you could literally transform a pile of rocks into gold. Hmm. It's, it's very much alchemy. Okay. Um, Seems like a good way to destabilize the economy real fast. Well, only select people can do it. Not a lot of people can. Okay. Um, but it's also really consuming and taxing so what makes magic work in this universe is called stormlight go figure the there are high storms on roshar every like like clockwork i think it's like every month um a high storm come high storm comes and it destroys everything in its path if you are outside during a high storm you die like it, it it will kill you but if you leave gemstones out there um, depending on how cut they are and what their facet are is how much they can hold. When the high storm is over, the gemstones are now glowing with stormlight. The stormlight can be used to power soul casting. Um, so basically it sucks the light out of the gems and then uses that as fuel to make whatever you need to happen happen. So a good example is, um, something happens and someone is trapped and so Yasna needs to get them out. She literally touches the stone and turns it into smoke hmm. to free the person. Okay. Um, and in doing that, because it was a big stone, one of the soul gems cracks because it, it used up too much of the stormlight. Um, but it's really interesting. Um, stormlight is a valuable thing. Their currency is based on it. So if you have money, you have like chits. So it'll have like a small piece of gemstone surrounded in glass. You can leave your money out during the high storm because nobody's going to steal it. Because if they did, they were, if they were out in the high storm, they're probably going to be dead. 
Um, but brighter money, money with stormlight, is worth more than dull money. Huh. So it's very interesting the way their economy works. Um, and these these bridge slaves do get paid, but it's such a pittance it doesn't really matter. Um, and it's basically they're they're not able to ever get free. Then you have Dalinar, who is the king's brother. Uh, spoiler alert: the king gets murdered in like the first chapter. Um, so that kind of spawns all of this because a Parshendi assassin essentially kills the king, which starts the war. Um, and Dalinar is the dead king's brother, who is uncle to the current king. And he is the one that's reading the way of kings and is really kind of questioning the way they actually rule. Um, it's Dalinar is such an interesting character. He's so complex. He's so... He's a noble, but he's so relatable. Kind of an Eland character again? Very much so. It, it's the, why are we doing this? Why? And, and like, uh, yes, it's, it's the way we've always done it. That's not good enough anymore. Why do we treat these people like dirt? Why do the color of my eyes make me better than that person? Um, and then you have Zeth. Zeth is the other POV character. Who is the guy who killed Dalinar or killed uh, the king? So you get the assassin's POV multiple times, and in fact, he becomes a recurring POV character in book two. Zeth, Zeth the Nameless, is very very interesting. He is a, an assassin who wears all white because he wants to be seen, and that is literally all I can tell you about Zeth without spoiling anything. He is such a dynamic character with such a twisted, messed up, sad backstory that, yes, he's an assassin, but he's also the most pitiable character in the entire series. Just, he's incredible. You, you get him right off the bat in that book, and it's, uh, what he can do is pretty great. It's amazing. It's called Surge Binding. Yeah. And what Surge Binding is is the ability to use Stormlight to do impossible things. In, in, in Zeth's case, he can use it to basically say that gravity doesn't work on me anymore. Yeah, or reposition gravity or something like that. Yep. Um, he can bind him. Let's say that he binds himself to the wall. All of a sudden, the wall is down. And so for him only, not everyone else. So he can literally just run along the wall like he's running on flat ground because he's bound himself to the wall. You can bind things to things. So like if he's being chased by somebody and there's a bookcase, he could bind the bookcase to the people and the bookcase would go flying towards the people and crash into them. Um, and then, of course, he has a shard blade. Shard blades are these fantastic swords that can literally cut through anything. They are summoned out of nothing and like coalesce into your hand into a mist. They are like 10 feet long, but weigh very little. Um, they're just insanely powerful, magical artifacts. And you also have shard plate, which are the only things that shard blades cannot cut. And shard, this, this is also covered way early on. Like Zeth talks about this immediately. A shard blade doesn't kill you by cutting you. No, it doesn't. Tell, tell, oh, yay, talk about that. It, uh, it burns out their soul or eats their soul, maybe? Burns, I think, is the most accurate. So let's say that 
you were to stab somebody with a soul with a shard blade or just cut through them it does not cut their body it passes through flesh like mist but if you sever the spine their eyes literally burn out of their head and just smoke and they're dead not a mark on them aside from their eyes being missing but let's say that it's only the arm like let's say that you get cut through the arm your arm no longer works and will eventually wither yeah and just wither and die um so usually it has to be amputated um shard shard blades are really fascinating in that there's very little known about them to start and the characters don't know much about them um they're just like these things are super powerful and really cool and we can use them to fight chasm fiends and kill the parshendi sweet um and that's really kind of it um but shard plate also kind of makes you a superhero um it's kind of like an exosuit you can jump uh, higher you can run faster you can uh you are infinitely stronger. Uh, you have much more stamina, so you're able to do more for longer. Um, but those also run on stormlight. So there are crystals that you have. There are stormlight crystals within the chest piece. Um, and the more you use them, the more stormlight you expend. It has to be replaced. Otherwise, it just becomes this super heavy suit of armor that you're trapped in. And at least the shard blades are a limited quantity, like a known limited mm-hmm. quantity in the world. That is very true. No more shard blades are being made. Shard plate, I think, is able to be made. It's just super expensive to do so. Noble Um, only. Huh? Nobles only kind of deal. Very very much so. Um, But shard blades are very limited in number. Um, Only nobility are allowed to have shard blades for obvious reasons. Um, And yeah, it's, it's really interesting once you start getting into who has shard blades and why. Um, there is an antagonist, a Sadius, Sadius Toral. Um, he is kind of Dalinar's foil. He is just the worst. He is just, oh God, I hate him so much. Um, and the thing is, I hate him, but he also has points. He's one of those antagonists that you understand why they are doing what they're doing, even while you hate them. Okay. So a solid Magneto. Very much so. Very much a solid Magneto and a wonderful foil um, to Dalinar. Because basically where Dalinar is like, you know, these these codes and ethics, we should do, you like, we should treat people fairly. He's like, no, that's a bunch of garbage. You know, we were selected by the, we were selected, we were given light eyes by the gods let's enjoy that let's you know we were we were chosen for a reason let's not question why we were chosen (laughs) um and basically that you know they're idealized nonsense um but before the king was assassinated um sadius and dalinar were actually very good friends which also kind of ties back into your magneto point in that they were once very good friends so that when when there are moments where sadius is like trust me the reader is screaming, no, you idiot, why are you doing that? But Dalinar has reason to trust Thaddeus mm-hmm. um, because they had worked together before. Yeah. So there's one other thing I want to ask about while we're on this topic, and it's the uh, prologue of the first book. Uh-huh. And some, Alan, some crazy stuff happens in that prologue. Some crazy stuff does happen in that prologue. What are you kind of wanting to know? 
Uh, well, there's a prologue long question mark in my brain. The one that happens like a thousand years previously with the 13 dudes that are all have their shard blades. Oh, with Kalak and Jezrian? Yeah. So essentially there are, it, it really is. This is a series long question mark uh, because it hasn't been really resolved yet. There are a lot of theories about it. Um, and I think we know who they are. But they talk about the blades and how their oath ends here. And they basically have 13 blades that they shove into a rock and they all walk away from. It is thought that these are the Knights Radiant. Knights Radiant were an order of knights that protected the people of Roshar um, with specific like powers. Um, there were different orders of knights. But that during like the, the before time, I guess... Um, which is not really heavily explained, something happened, some great war happened, and the Knights Radiant failed hard in their task. So hard, in fact, they were just like, we give up. We're done. We can't do this anymore. The oath is broken. We're putting away our blades. We are leaving them here, and we're going to walk away. Well, they were, they were some sort of eternal thing, right? Where they kept dying and being reborn. and Yep. Um, and there were only nine that were able to, because I'm, I'm not going to lie, I am looking at it right now because it, 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 I have to, it, it's very crunchy. Um, nine of them were there to give their swords back. One was lost, but the way it's phrased is, and yet he could not help glancing back at the ring of swords in the single open spot, the place where the tenth sword should have gone. The one of them who was lost, the, the one they had abandoned, Forgive us, Calic thought, then left. We still don't know what that is. <laughs> as far okay. as I know, we have no idea. Um, but essentially, the the Eternal Knights Radiance, the Heralds, are over. Um, once this starts, um, the Blades must be left and the Earth Pack ends. And so it, it kind of gives a very dark and ominous opening to the Stormlight Archive. Yeah, and it's a real, it's real crunchy. Like there's some, there's some things that are suggested there that uh, hint at a much larger, a much larger thing on the horizon for that world. Now you're talking about like this recurring, just like wave of just evil monsters that the size of mountains and things like that. It's just pretty good, terrifying stuff in there. Yep. It's just really, it's really crunchy, really sad. Um, so I guess for me, are those nine blades still stuck in a rock somewhere? The question is, what are those blades? And the answer, we think, are what are called the honor blades. Honor blades are the true version of what a shard blade should be. Um, and without getting too much into it, it's basically shard blades are a generic knockoff of honor blades. Okay. The ability to make shard blades has been lost, um, but so have the honor blades. The honor blades are all but gone. No one knows where they are. No one knows what happened to them. Just that the Knights Radiant basically said, you know what? Nope. We're done. We can't do this anymore. One of us has died. That's never happened before. We can't fight this. We can't stop this. Um, 
but what's really interesting is going back and looking at um going back and looking at the prelude to the stormlight archive um you kind of at the end of the second book you kind of know what the things were that they were killing um and the waves upon waves of unending horror you kind of know what those are now um and yeah it's kind of weird that i'm looking at it and i'm going oh who um which i I think I'll share with you what that is once we're off air, because again, I don't want to spoil anything. Yes, please. Um, but it's very, very interesting. Very, very interesting. All right. Well, Alan, um, thank you so much for coming on and doing this. This was a lot of fun, and it's making me want to go pull my copy of Mistborn back up on my iPad and read that. Yay, the, uh, that is my goal. Plane flight. <laughs> or I might buy Stormlight and actually give that a solid read. Give it an actual read. Um, yeah. Listen, you can find all these on Audible, and I encourage you to dip into this in whichever way you want to listen, you want to enjoy it, listeners. Stormlight Archive is hard to get through just in Audible. It really is. It's oh. it's very dense. Very, 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 very dense. In the same way that I don't think I would ever be able to focus enough on Lord of the Rings as an Audible... I, I don't think I... I have tried twice on Stormlight, and I can't do it, so I think I'm going to have to get the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, that might be my upcoming vacation book. Uh, we'll see. So, Alan, um, where can people find you on the internet? Um, you can find me several places. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Alan underscore sales. If you want to hear more of what I do, I actually do a, a podcast with Matt um, and our buddy Jake Mason called Hard Reboot. Most recent episode that we, at least at the time of this recording, uh, was Jekyll and Hyde. So it went up that, yesterday. Yeah. It went up yesterday, so that's really exciting. Um, I'm also the Game Master for Pokemon World Tour United. Um, you, we can be found at PWG Podcast on Twitter. Um, so if you like Pokemon in cute clothes or liking a grown man making really weird voices, come check it out. You can find us on the internet at fifthdraw.com, follow us on Twitter at fifthdraw, or email us at social at fifthdraw.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt Hoodley. If you enjoyed this episode, why not give us a rating and a review? Or maybe tell a friend. Getting the word out helps us immensely. Our music is Arcade Montage by Lee Roosevelt and can be found at the Free Music Archive. That's all for this week. We hope you'll join us next week for another episode. And hey, thanks for listening. (laughs) 